0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Now then, I am super, super excited. We are in January. January. It's January 6th, and that means we are back in our series on the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John chapter 7. Now, I'm going to be totally transparent here and, and level with you. January is the month, I think, that scares me more than any other month of the year. I feel like we get through December with all of the different things we've done and accomplished and been a part of and different Ministries and classes and family stuff and everything in school. And then January hits, and I feel like I'm at the foot of this enormous steep mountain. And it's just like, oh boy, we're starting all over again. It's now January through December, and it's a great deal. And candidly, it can be a bit overwhelming. The weather doesn't help. It can be a bit gray and gloomy and doomy. And if you're anything like me at all, it can sort of be like, huh, I sure wish it was Christmas. But that's a long way away. And so we can, if we're not careful, allow our souls to fall into a little bit of a rut. Having had many, many conversations with many, many of you over email, text, phone call, and in person, I sense that I'm not alone in this, that many of us are kind of struggling with, okay, it's January, ugh, now what? Well, let me just say as shepherdly and as pastorally as I possibly can, this is our big idea for the morning. And I have been eager to share it with you because really, this is yet again one of those, one of those sermons in which it's really for me. I get to preach to myself and you kind of get to sit here and listen to it. But it is from John chapter 7. Our big idea for the morning very simply goes like this. Your soul was made for Jesus. Your soul was made for Jesus. Now that is masterfully important particularly when we begin to hear all the other little whisper campaigns and the nudges that say, ugh, you're just a bag of chemicals and electrical impulses. No, 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 no. Your soul was made for Jesus. Now, just as a way of quick, quick on-ramp, we are in the Gospel of John. We started this, if you can believe it, way back early fall of last year, and John has a very clear, distinct point for you reading this Gospel. Whereas his epistles are written to the church, to believers, the gospel of John is largely written to unbelievers so that you will believe. That's the, the the treatise, the premise, the thesis of his entire gospel is so that you will read it, you will receive it, and you will believe it, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you're John, sitting in Ephesus, somewhere in the mm, mid-80s AD, how are you going to build that argument? Well, In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John's going to do it masterfully. He's going to begin by telling you that this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, was actually the Logos. It's like He is the incarnation, the personification, the humanization of gravity and light and heat and everything in the universe. It's Him. He became a person. And He walked among us. And then you're going to demonstrate that he is creator God. He transforms water to wine. You're going to demonstrate that he is the one whereby people have proximity and connection to God himself. And so we see Jesus in chapter 2 going and cleaning the temple and saying, it's not about an edifice. It's about a person. It's me. And then we see in chapter 3, Jesus and Nick at night, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. It is coming upon you. It's not something that you go and seek out, it comes upon you. We learn in chapter 4 through a conversation with a woman at the well that yes, Jesus cares about wealthy Sanhedrin members, but he also cares about the morally derelict and everything in between. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus really begins to upset the apple cart of false religion. And by that I mean every other religion that strives to help people build a little papier-mâché boat that will carry them to heaven on their works. And Jesus shows up and He pokes His finger in that little papier-mâché boat and people lose their minds. Because their whole construct of how to have right standing before God, how to spend eternity with Him, is devastated. Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which takes us then into chapter 6, and we realize that Jesus is Himself the provision from god he is the bread of life he is sovereign he walks on water and jesus preaches that megachurch down to about 11 people because he wasn't concerned with the things that we are generally concerned with and then last time we were in this chapter we began in chapter 7 and chapters 7 8 9 and 10 are really one super long narrative it could be one very long chapter in our bible it all takes place in jerusalem so what i'm going to do this morning I'm going to read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 32, to the end of the chapter, and then we'll see real quickly if we can uh, unpack it. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 32. This is in Jerusalem. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, and if I were you, I would put a little asterisk or something next to verse 46. It is the hinge. It is the fulcrum point. The the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he, ha- what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is God's word. So what's going on here? Jesus is in Jerusalem. We are going to see that this plot that has been hatched to kill Jesus is going to continue to grow legs. The plot to kill Jesus did not just happen overnight. It was not a spontaneous outburst of rage. It has been a calculated thing because they are threatened. It finally gets to a boiling point, and we are told in John chapter 11, verse 48, that the Jews finalized their plans to kill him because on account of him, people were believing And the Romans would come and take away their status and their power. Incidentally, I've said this before, the two great enemies of the faith, status and power. If you feel like your status and your power are being threatened, you will not react well. And so the religion of Israel at the time reacts very threateningly because they feel like they are going to lose their status and their power. Jesus is in Jerusalem. They're still mad that he healed a paralyzed guy way back in chapter 5 and people are just talking about him they can't help it they're just talking about Jesus and the Pharisees are furious they don't even want him to be the product of any conversation whatsoever but God is sovereign oh they dispatch some officers to go and bring him in but John doesn't tell us how that mission's going to go he'll circle back to that later what we know is that God is sovereign and he is in charge of the entire enterprise nothing will happen outside of his time let me pick up in verse 33 we'll just sort of uh walk through this very briefly verse 33 jesus then said i will be with you a little longer and then i'm going to him who sent me now john has told us that jesus very frequently has an immediate obvious physical meaning and he has a larger spiritual meaning John writes down a lot of these sayings to to give us both pictures. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be with you for a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. In other words, I'm going to be alive just a little bit longer, and then I'm going to die, and I'm going to return to God my Father who has sent me. And that's true. That is a part of the meaning, but there's more to it. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Meaning, I will be dead, I will be seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and you can't come there. But there's also a different meaning. There's an irony here that John wants us to understand. The Jewish leaders will pronounce upon themselves their own curse. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You see, after 586 BC, the Jewish peoples had been dispersed all over the known world. Many of them came back. Most of them did not we have jews living in eastern europe and western europe and north africa in the middle east everywhere and the jewish leaders here with jesus say is he going to go and be with them and therefore also the gentiles ha and the great irony is the answer is yes yes jesus will go among the gentiles it's not what anybody expected in the old testament It's in there and just nobody saw it correctly. He will go among the Gentiles as well and he will be the confluence of both Jew and Gentile. The next age will be characterized by being in Christ. Regardless if you're Jew or Gentile, are you in Christ? And so they pronounce upon themselves what has happened for the last 20 centuries. Has the nation of Israel found Messiah? No, they are darkened to him by constitution. Israel, as we know it today, is a secular state, rejecting any faith construct whatsoever. By their own word, Jesus has gone, as it was, to the dispersion. Now then, verse 36. What does it mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Their idea was, if he's going to Babylon or if he's going to Eastern Europe... That's unclean to us, really good, moral, righteous Jews. We couldn't go over there and find him. So they don't understand his words. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast. So let me give a little bit more backdrop here. Jesus has been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the funnest feast. It's the biggest party. Celebrating all of the harvest. Celebrating all the fact that uh, God has brought his children Israel through the exodus out of egypt and the feast of tabernacles was widely regarded as the funnest of all the feasts well now it's the last day so there's been a a time change since this conversation with the pharisees it's the last day people have asked is it the seventh day is it the eighth day i don't know i don't care it doesn't really matter it's the last day it's the great day the great feast jesus stood up and cried out now i wish john had given more information on this because there's an absolute ton that's happening culturally and contextually that John doesn't tell us that we know to be true from other extra-biblical historical records. On the Feast of Tabernacles, these people would build little booths, little huts, little tents, and they'd put them on the roofs of their houses, and they would live in them, sort of like camping for a week, right there at their own home. They would live on their courtyards, or on their roofs, or in the alleys, or in the streets outside... Everybody's living in these little temporary huts and they would decorate them thus and have all kinds of fun. And every single day at the time of the morning sacrifice, the priests would go down the mountain of Temple Mount and they would sing the Hallel, the Psalms of Ascent. They would sing it all together and the people would follow the priests and the the temple choirs would follow and the entire gathering of Jerusalem is singing the Psalms of Ascent together. And they're also chanting over and over again Isaiah 12:3. Isaiah 12:3 says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would chant that over and over again. And so the high priests would lead the procession every day, the Feast of Tabernacles, down to the pool of Siloam. Siloam means the sent one. They would go to the pool of the sent one, and he had this big golden pitcher, and he would dip it into the water. And they would traipse back up Temple Mount all the way into the temple courtyards. And the people would continue to chant and to sing. Isaiah 12, 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would chant the Psalms of Ascent. And it was a wonderful, festive, rejoicing mood. They would get up to the altar and the priest would circle the altar one time for the first day. On the second day, he would circle the altar twice. And then he would stand up next to the altar and he would raise his hands. And the people would shout, lift up your hands! Or actually they were Jewish, so it was like, lift up your hands! Lift up your hands! Right? And he would lift up his hands higher and higher. And then the crowd would fall silent. There would be this great anticipation as finally the high priest would pour the water out onto the altar. It was to signify, it was to reflect and to remember that God had given the children of Israel water out of a rock in the Exodus, and it was looking forward to that God would provide the rains to provide for their crops and their agriculture. So it was a massive, whipped up, rejoicing, festive kind of an atmosphere. Every person there at the Feast of Tabernacles, in their left hand, they had a a, sort of a, a wrap of branches that were very fragrant, willow branches, some other twigs that they would wrap together. In their right hand, they had a citrus fruit just to demonstrate the harvest. And they would all wave these things as they were chanting. It smelled good. It sounded good. It was fun. One rabbi wrote, if you've never rejoiced at tabernacles, you've never rejoiced. Well, it's the last day, the great day. All of the people follow the high priest. And there's a lot going on here. The high priest is always a Sadducee. The the Pharisees... um, were the law, uh, law keepers, the experts in the Torah? They didn't get along. But at Tabernacles, they all played their parts together. And they all went from Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam on the final day. They got the golden laver, they filled it with water, and up they go back to the temple. And the high priest walks around one time, two times. Three times. Four, five, six, seven. And then he stands up and he raises his hands and the people are chanting and waving all of their things and they're saying, lift up your hands! Lift up your hands! And as soon as he does, the crowd falls silent. Total silence and anticipation. So what happens in verse 37 is absolutely shocking. In the midst of, Timed to the second of that complete silence following the hoop, right before the priest pours out the water, Jesus stood up and cried out. Incidentally, if you have a Jesus that doesn't yell, you don't have Jesus. He was not meek and mild all the time. He flogged folks with whips, and at the most awkward, inopportune times, he shouts to the whole nation. On the last day, right before the water is going to be poured out, Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine? Please try, Gentile. Can you imagine the shock and the gasp of the throngs of humanity gathered around when that silence is broken by this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth? right before the water is poured out to conclude the great feast. If anyone's thirsty, come to me and let him drink. The water's not the point, people. It's me. I'm the bread of life. I am the provision from God Himself. I am the water that all of the Old Testament has been looking forward to. Way back from the stream that flowed through the Garden of Eden. Way back through Psalm 1 that says He will be like a tree planted by a stream of living water. Right through Nehemiah 9 that said the streams of water are the rushing Spirit of God. Jesus says, it's me! It's me! Well, as you might imagine, that created quite a ruckus. Verse 38, He continues, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water that is astonishing what does it mean to be thirsty what does it mean to have thirst well first of all what's amazing is jesus says this water that he offers is free you don't even have to have apple pay it's free you don't have to walk up and click it's free secondly human souls have thirst Yes, physical thirst. Maybe you've been really, really thirsty before, but every human soul also thirsts. I feel it in January, quite candidly. Human souls have thirst. It's like a deep longing that, that something must satisfy and relieve. Just as we were made to drink water, humans were made to drink from God. Jesus is that one who is the satisfaction of drinking from God. So what does it mean to come and drink? Well, it means that that's what it is to believe. We know that the soul can drink. That that's how it is made. That the soul was made for Jesus and that it is capable of drinking. This is why we sing in How Great Thou Art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. Our souls long and they have desperation and it can be filled. And then Jesus says, he who believes, he who comes out of his, well, our translations say heart. It's actually koelia. Out of his intestines, out of his guts, out of his bowels, out of his innards, out of his personal center will flow rivers of living water. Why? Because he will have the river maker indwelling him. Now this is so pregnant, this is so rich, I wish I could take days to go through this. In Ezekiel chapter 47, we are told of one day Messiah will come and the water will begin to trickle ever so slightly right from the temple, but the, the water will grow. It'll get deeper. It'll get wider. It'll get deeper. It'll get wider. It'll get deeper. It'll get wider until finally it makes its way all the way down to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea will come to life. And every known species of fish will live in the Dead Sea because of this life giving water. And Jesus is saying, yes, but until that happens in this age, the river of life in this world, (laughs) it's you. It's you. It's the church. To which everyone went, <gasps> what? Have you met church people? They're angry. They all vote the same way. They don't like the same kind of restaurants. To really cho- Yes, yes, because that's not what the church is actually supposed to be characterized by.' Is a certain set of political affiliations. The church is a bunch of people who are indwelled by the river maker. God's intent of blessing the rest of the world is by the people who are indwelled by His Spirit. Now John says, let me explain. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, which hadn't come at this point because He hadn't been glorified because you know He still has to die and He has to be buried and He has to rise again and He has to ascend and He has to send the Counselor. Oh, I'll get there in a little bit, chapter 14 to 16. He'll tell us all about that. Well, let me move on. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Every time Jesus speaks, there's going to be division. Every single paragraph of chapter 7 begins with division. Some people say, well, yeah, he's probably this prophet from Deuteronomy 18, 15, that Moses said someone would come, you have to listen to him. He's a prophet, he's a a good guy. Others said this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? (laughs) Because that dude's from Nazareth. Have you been to Nazareth? I mean, seriously, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So there is division. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They're ignorant. They don't know. Yes, he was currently living in Nazareth, but he was born, as we all know, in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, at least a couple years, flees to Egypt for a time, and then Joseph moves his family up to Nazareth in Galilee. So there was a division among the people over him. Jesus always has a way of doing that. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. It was an interruption he, he stopped the normal proceedings, you see, and that was a threat. The officers then came to the chief priests. These are the temple police. These are Jewish Levites who are the swole-up priestly class who are allowed to carry arms in the temple courts to keep the peace so that the Romans don't have to get involved. These are tough guys. And they've heard the words of Jesus and they go, uh-uh, I'm not touching that dude. The officers... Uh, came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? Officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. It's not that they're impressed, it's that they're frightened. This man makes claims that we can't reconcile. If I have to run the risk of having you Pharisees mad at us or that guy mad at us, no thank you. You can scream and holler all you want. I'm not running afoul of that guy. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? And John's going to ask three different groups if they've been deceived. And it's John's way of ironically and cleverly saying, no, actually, the Pharisees, you've been deceived. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? We're the smart guys. We haven't believed in him. You guys have lost your minds. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed the shocking gall of this statement the pharisees standing in the temple courts say all of these people they don't know what we know we are they are accursed it would literally be like a pastor standing up on a platform and looking at the entire congregation saying you don't know what i know you're all condemned that's what they say and it's john's way of saying actually the pharisees were the ones that were accursed Nicodemus finally pipes up who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He tries to maintain some sort of order. They replied are you ignorant? That's actually not in the text that's my little translation. Are you from Galilee too? They knew he wasn't from Galilee but that's where the hillbillies were from up in the sticks. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Actually they were doubly wrong. Jonah was from Galilee. And they missed it because they were so angry. And of course, the Christ from up north comes as well. What are we supposed to be doing with all of this passage? We've said that our soul was made for Jesus. Well, let me just give a couple very quick implications for how I think this text lands on us. Number one goes like this. Everyone has to decide on Jesus. This is what John is showing us. Everyone has to decide on Jesus. Every single paragraph in chapter 7 begins with division. You have to make a decision. And by the way, it is philosophically, rationally, logically impossible to simply say that he's a good guy. That he is a swell teacher. He's a nice rabbi. He's a groovy hippie. You have to make a decision. He is, as C.S. Lewis said, either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord and to live in a way in which he is not one of those three things creates a functional madness in your life and your soul will wither. Everyone has to decide on Jesus. He leaves no room for, for wishy-washiness, none whatsoever. And so, to help us decide on Jesus, I'm going to give you ten quick claims from the Gospel of John. I could give you a hundred, but just... I like top 10 lists to start the year. 10 quick claims that Christ himself makes because of his uniqueness that no one else has ever been like before. 10 quick claims. Number one, Jesus claims to be God. When someone claims to be God, you kind of have to pay attention. I'm sorry, did you say Greg or God? You said God. I wanted you to say Greg. You said God. Okay, like a God? Like, no, 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 I'm God. Okay, I got to take that one seriously i got to make a decision about that. Number two, Jesus claims to exist before he was born. (laughs) That's unique. John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. I'm sorry, what's your birthday? Uh, Don't have one. I am pre-existing eternally. That's a pretty significant, substantial claim. Number three, Jesus claims to come as a shepherd that will die for his sheep. It's a pretty amazing claim. This one who is innocent in thought, word, and deed says he loves his people and he will willingly lay down his life for theirs even though they are guilty and he is innocent. It's a pretty amazing claim. Number four, Jesus claims to be the only way to God. Jesus is remarkably exclusivistic. I guess if you're going to incarnate, live a perfect, flawless life, hang and die and suffer on a cross make a way, you are in fact Jacob's ladder, then it's okay for you to say that you are the only way. But it is an absolutely exclusivistic claim. Number five, Jesus claims to be the bread and water that impart eternal life. You will cease to have joy and life abundant if you are not eating and drinking the Son of God. You will never cease to exist. The question is, in what capacity will you exist forever? Number six, Jesus claims that we can do nothing without Him. Chapter 15, I am the branch, you are the vine. Apart from me, you can do, well, quite a lot. No, you can do nothing. He is the river maker. He is the indwelling Spirit. Apart from Him, we're simply spinning our wheels. Uh, Number seven, Jesus claims to forgive sin. No other rabbi, no other teacher, no other leader, no other preacher says, by the way, I can forgive your sin. I can wipe it away. I can pay for it and I will pay the debt. Jesus claims to forgive sin. Number eight, Jesus claims to fulfill the entire law completely. Every jot, every tittle, everything that is reflective of the moral character of God Himself, Jesus did it flawlessly for 33-ish years. He fulfilled the law of God completely. Number nine, Jesus claims to be the one who raises people from the dead. (laughs) Okay, that's a pretty serious claim. If you're the one who can make dead things live, I want you in my life. I need you for me, not against me. I want to be for you, not against you. Number ten, Jesus claims to be the supreme glory that will satisfy us forever it's him it's jesus he really is the answer so your soul was made for jesus and that means that apart from being fully in christ we will always be characterized by thirst in other words we'll be we'll be striving we'll be seeking we'll be grasping for something else to try and make us whole and we will never find it so let me just say this at the beginning of january maybe you're here and you're thirsty with respect to your fitness You thought, okay, it's January, time to kick the Doritos and lose a few LBs. okay? Well, good luck with that, really. But if you're not starting with Jesus, you will be guilty of will worship and it'll be over before the next playoff game. Maybe you're here in January and you're thirsty with respect to your finances. You just can't quite see how this is going to work out with your job, with whatever else you've spent or are or, or about to have to spend. Let me just tell you, come to Him and drink first. Maybe you're here in January and you're thirsty with respect to your relationships, your spouses, your kids, your parents. Let me just say, the answer is Jesus. Allow the river maker to dwell up and swell up within you. And your soul will have rest. Maybe you're here in January... And you're thirsty with respect to your health. You've gotten that phone call and you're not sure what's next. Talked with many of you these last several weeks. And I know that's where you are. Come to the river maker and drink. Your soul was made for Jesus. And so come and drink all over again. And streams of living water will flow from you. Now next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin chapter 8. I have some exciting things to share from chapter 8. I pray that this year, this week, this month starts off with all of us looking to this Jesus who would have the audacity to stand on the last day of the feast and say, come to me and drink. And so may we all diligently before our, our heads hit the pillow this evening beg the Spirit to lead us to come to the Son and drink. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You For your indwelling spirit, it's a very exciting time to be alive. We don't have to wait for first advent, for it has come. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning who does not know you, that their soul thirsts, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son. For the rest of us, Father, we have uh, allowed distraction and our souls are thirsty and we have forgotten that He Our Lord Jesus is Lord and Savior and King and Brother and desires daily interaction. So help us come to Him and drink all over again. Father, I pray that this body of believers will be characterized as those who have streams of living water flowing from their innards. It would be a blessing to this community because we know that's what you want. So pray all these things, God, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and then we will be dismissed. This will be from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 13. One of my favorite benedictions. Romans, if I can find it there. They didn't move it. Romans, chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope.